What we want to achieve is a circular economy. That's ultimately what we have to get to as a society in order to solve the plastic pollution crisis so that when something becomes a waste, it actually becomes a resource for another supply chain. From Deergo Collective, this is Responsibly Different. Sharing stories of certified B corporations and our journey of joining them in leveraging business as a force for good. I'm Ben Marine. In this episode, I sat down with Ben Kneppers, one of the co-founders of Boreo. Boreo is tackling the issue of plastic pollution in our oceans by taking on one of the most harmful forms of plastic pollution fishing nets. They take discarded fishing nets and turn them into high-quality skateboards, sunglasses, surf fins, and Patagonia's hat brims. Ben shares a peek behind the curtain and some of the nuances in recycling. And be sure to stay tuned after my chat with Ben to hear more about our own B Corp journey and how we're looking into different solar options. First off, Ben, I want to welcome you to the show. Super excited to have you and Bureo uh, represented here uh, to kind of kick us off. I mean, you all turn fishnets into other products. I'm so curious where did that idea come from and, and how did you all get started? How did you bring that idea to life? Yeah. I mean, first off, thank you for this opportunity. Um, it's an incredible group that you've gotten already to contribute to this, this great outlet you've developed here. So um, it's an honor to be a part of that. Um, I am notorious for being a bit too long-winded with my answer. So I'm going to try very hard to summarize a very complex and whirlwind story into uh, as succinct as possible while still giving you know plenty of the anecdotes along the way that I think are worth sharing. But basically, Boreo started just with three gringos wanting to create a positive solution out there for a place that we love being the ocean environment and the problem that we saw firsthand affecting it being ocean plastic pollution. Um, I, although my two other co-founders, David Stover and Kevin Ahern, are, are from the Northeast of the United States, we actually first met the three of us together on the other side of the world in, in Sydney, Australia. Um, I was working as an environmental consultant. David was a financial consultant. And Kevin, who went to engineering school with David at Lehigh, um, was taking a year off from his design engineering design career to travel around the world doing surf trips with his his twin brother Brian and um, and we we connected in in the northern beaches of Sydney and Manly and and uh, as you do you the late night beers led to a few conversations and just kind of saying like hey wouldn't it be great if we took our skill sets and connected it something with that we're really passionate about. And we left it there and our careers went on. Um, and interestingly enough, mine took me to Chile, uh, where I continued as an environmental consultant. And I was just struck by, wow, there's this country that is still um, very, very much um, unaffected by industrialization in, in, in many coastal environments. Very Many people say it's, it's like what California was 50 years ago. Um, so much raw nature, so much beauty, especially in the coastal environment, Chile being this long, narrow country uh, along the coast of the Pacific. And in addition to that, um, there was a really great support network for entrepreneurs in Chile. 
the Chilean government. Um, their most famous program to date is called Startup Chile. It's arguably one of the best offers in the world for any really early stage startup to want to just create a business from scratch. They'll give you startup capital, equity free, visas, office space to come to Chile for six months and start your business. Um, so anyone out there looking to start, have a look at Startup Chile. And with that information, I said to Dave and Kevin, hey, remember all those talks we had late night? Well, I think we could actually have a place to make those into reality. And so we spent the next application deadline was in six months. We spent those six months really digging in and saying, what could we create? And we kept coming back to that point of having this touch on our skill sets, being finance, sustainability and engineering design and combine them with our passion being the ocean environment. And again and again, we kept seeing this problem plaguing it from all of our surf travels and, and spent time spent in coastal environments around the world was plastic pollution. And so we really just took it from a very academic approach to an understand the problem. And to our surprise, there was, very, there was a lot of tangible solutions out there that could be done. And what, what three things that we kind of hooked on to uh, were one, um, infrastructure. 90% uh, of the plastic in the ocean is coming from land-based sources. So by stopping at its source, looking upstream and putting the infrastructure in place where it should be in, in, in the first place and having a solution for it will eliminate that stuff from getting in, out there in the first place. Two, um, education. People to this day still don't really understand the consequences of discarding plastic pollution in many cases, um, environments have in historically had a cultural habit of discarding things uh, after they were used because they were traditionally made from natural fibers that would naturally biodegrade. And then suddenly, 30, 40 years ago, it all just suddenly turned into plastic where nobody told them this stuff doesn't break down. So that plastic you're leaving in, the, in your environment, it can last 500 years. And nobody really got them aware of that. And unfortunately, now it's catching up with them with decades and decades of this single-use plastic consumption being discarded in irresponsible ways. And then the third being behavior change. When people connect materials to value, they're no longer seen as a waste. So by letting people see that there's a valuable resource in what you're perceiving as a waste, they won't throw it away anymore. And so based on those things, we had this novel idea. What if we could take plastic pollution, upcycle it into something of high value, and by doing so, finance this effort we need to do to educate communities and implement infrastructure and also demonstrate there's value in this material so people no longer choose to discard it anymore. And that's when um, we had the, this very complementary background and skill set where Kevin, from his design background, came in and said, we can't just expect to collect, collect any rubbish off the beach and make it into a consistent high-quality product. We need to have a uniform source of material if we want to recycle it and make quality products out of it. We're not trying to make some cheap little paper clip or, or desk toy. You know, it, We want to make something of high value, upcycle it. And so that's where we took a step back and said, if this is all about plastic pollution, what actually makes the plastic that's ending up in our oceans? And to our amaze, and, and coincidentally enough, I was actually doing an environmental study for the wild-caught fishing industry in Chile at that time, where I was struck to find how significant fishing nets are. Fishing nets, um, numerically, are they've, the estimates have given it's at least 10% of the ocean's plastic pollution, 
But more staggering is the fact that it is four times more harmful to marine life than all other forms of plastic pollution in the ocean combined. Um, it's designed to trap and entangle marine life. That's the purpose of it. So when it's left in the ocean environment and it's made from a plastic, it can do that for up to 500 years. And so nobody, so from that, we just simply took a, a, an approach to asking around, understanding my time in Chile, what the fishermen were doing. And to our amaze, there was really no solution for it. And at the same time, one fishing net is almost always made from one uniform type of plastic. So by putting all these things together, we kind of got this perfect coincidental, in some ways, combination of things happen where we got a really uniform source of plastic that didn't have a sound end of life solution that would be perfect fitting for high value products because nuts are also made from high value uh forms of plastic because they need to be really strong and durable. So that gave us an opportunity to make really high value products. And then leaving, summarizing this whole thing where we finally got to with, with the start of the business was, well, what should we make? And then that came back to our, our roots of being skaters and surfers. And we thought, well, the plastic cruiser skateboard craze was going off in, in Australia before we left. And we thought that's one kilo of plastic you can transform into something worth over well over a hundred dollars with, with wheels and trucks. And that thought, so that's where we kind of ran with it is we started, we started Boreo just on that novel idea, transform this once harmful pollution into a really positive solution that could then in, in effect by upcycling, continue this chain reaction of all these other positive solutions along with it. That's amazing. That's so. How'd I do? Yeah, how'd I do with that my, was great. My reputation of long-winded answers. That was that was really great and and super helpful to paint that picture. I mean, I saw a stat on your site too that it's there's six hundred and forty thousand tons of discarded fish nets and gear that pollute our oceans every year. I mean, that's a number I, I I can't even fathom it. Like, I don't even know how to wrap my brain around that number. Yeah, um, that's that's pretty wild. Yeah, it, it's it, in terms of plastic pollution. I mean, there's so many different analogies. I mean, one that's pretty simple is is if we we wanted to compare all the plastic pollution, it would be every single minute. Imagine you're waking up, you're having your coffee in the morning, you get picking up the morning paper, and the dump trucks coming to get the trash. That full dump truck of plastic is being dumped in the ocean every minute of every day. That's the rate we're at right now. Oh man, that's so wild. Yeah, I, I'm I'm cu I'm curious when you were getting this started, what were some of the biggest challenges? I mean, I, I imagine it wasn't easy to, or or maybe it was. I don't know to go out and collect all these nets. Super easy, of course. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what I'm curious, what did that look like? Like the actual, like, all right, we're going to do this and like making it happen. Yeah. I mean, it, 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 um, every, we get that question all the time. Like what was the hardest thing? And, and it was like, everything was hard to be honest with you. Nothing was easy. We were just really fortunate to have such a great network around us. Um, taking a step back, people ask why Chile, Chile is because we got the opportunity there. Um, and not just with the funding from the government, but the, the the network of fisheries that were open to working with us, the recycling partners we had on the ground, the trucking companies, everybody was willing to give us a go. And that was by far our hugest break we had early on. But to make it happen is a different story. To have people say, yeah, sure, gringo, if you want to get this trash and move it here and, and run it through our machine, like, yeah, 
go for it. But it's a whole nother thing to actually see that through. And that was really the thing was, in, in essence, the biggest challenge was creating an entirely new supply chain from scratch. I mean, there was nothing in place before we, we started this thing and, and we had to create it all. And so with that supply chain, I'm curious, are the fishing nets, are you working with fishermen saying, when you're done with your net, give them to us? Or is it, hey, when you're out fishing, if you find a discarded net, grab it and we'll pay you for it? Like, Or, or is it both? Great question. Yeah. We focus on, and this is this is consistent with what we found in those early studies, is we focus on the stuff before it ends up in the ocean. When it gets lost at sea, you have so much more complications and so much more um, risk of that material being compromised on its quality, its performance, its consistency, its chance of it being contaminated by other foreign debris. Um, and so the whole way we work is we work together with the fishermen. We educate them on the problem and that we have this really cool solution for them. And then by giving them that equipment and making their lives easier, because to be honest, their current options, they don't like either is, is to dump it. They, they burn it on the beaches or they have to pay a really expensive fee to send it off somewhere else. And so by offering them a really sound end of life solution where we give them a compensation per, per kilo that they provide us um, to make that value connection, it, it's just become a win, win, win. That's awesome. And for folks that are listening to this at home and thinking, you know, how can I get involved? How can I also help, you know, protect our oceans in that way? Are, are there ways that folks can contribute to helping either spread the knowledge of this like process or helping to maintain keeping plastics out of the ocean? Yeah, I mean, there's many levels to it. Um, there's the day-to-day level of just being conscious of what you consume and, and how you're managing it when it does meet its end of life. Um, it is pretty unreal how much stuff that we still don't even have recycling solutions for that are consumed in the millions every day. Um, so being aware of what you're consuming, focusing on staying away from single-use uh, plastic products, um, using your reusables whenever possible, knowing that every dollar is a vote. So when you're supporting, the market does respond and react. And that can be in many ways the quickest way to take action is by industry saying the market's demanding it and therefore we need to support this. Um, and then from a bigger approach is, I mean, policy is huge. Um, that will just just set the tone for the entire industry um, because industry can only go so far, especially with how much how cheap virgin plastic is and how easy it is to work with. Um, that's not going away anytime soon. So by having us to be pushing our politicians to step up and, and make more effort to uh, be more responsible, there's great, great things going on. I mean, in Chile, for example, they banned the plastic bag. They've um, had ex- uh, extended producer responsibility act that now holds businesses accountable for every um kilo of a, of a material they introduce into the economy, they're now held accountable for properly supporting the disposal of that same amount of material. So there's great things on that level. And then on a life mission level, um, you know, we also get the feedback, why are only fishing nets? Well, we never said we were going to solve the whole damn problem. We need more people out there creating more solutions. Again, like I said, there's a lot of low-hanging fruit. There's a lot that still can be done that is tangible. Yes, it is a complicated problem, 
and we're trying our best to be part of it with just fishing nets, but there's so much more that can be done. So if you really are passionate about this, there's plenty of work and, and even a, a life's work that you can do um, to take these issues on. I'm curious, are there plans to to bring this concept that you that you've developed in Chile and and bring it to other parts of the world? Absolutely, and that that's right. What we're in the middle of now. So we've already launched our program in Peru and Argentina. Uh, we're actively operating there in both of those locations for almost two years now. Without COVID and the complications there, we were on track to then get to Uruguay and Ecuador, which we're still looking to do in the near term. Um, and then, yeah, really, the whole mission we have is to provide this net positive solution to end of use fishing gear to every fishery in the need in need worldwide. Um, the, the recycling innovations we've been able to work through with our partners at Patagonia's material developments team have been phenomenal. And now we basically have the demand in place to provide the solution and, and offer it at a market price for every fishing net we can get our hands on. If it meets our requirements and, if, and we can have the infrastructure in place country by country, we can provide this solution. So that's really what we're after now. Obviously, in a, in a controllable rate, um, there's, there's a lot that we have to maintain um, in every place we set up. Um, so we're just taking it step by step, but yeah, really in essence, we want to be that solution. That's great. And and I know that your process of kind of breaking down the fishing nets into pellets, making it a plastic really ripe for kind of any injection molded product. If there are businesses again, listening to this, that maybe have a need or have a plastic product and want to use your pellets, is that something anybody can come to you and do or, or how, how do folks navigate reaching out to you for that? I wish I could say yes and say, yeah, go for it. Um, but uh, we have been working with our, in Patagonia, we're part of their Tinchet investor fund, um, investment fund. So we actually are, they own a, a equity stake of our company. They provide a seed investment with us in, incredibly early on that completely supported us to expand the way we have expanded. Um, and in addition to that, over the last five years, we've been working with their materials development team to um, on how we can actually take our novel material and incorporate it into legit Patagonia products. And um, thankfully, we've been able to achieve those. And, but, but unfortunately, what that has led us to is working our tails off to meet that demand that we already have put in place. So right now, that's really our focus is scaling this solution, which conveniently enough sticks with our mission of providing this to as many fishermen as we have in need, um, is to meet the demand we already have for Patagonia. So that is kind of stage one of our effort. But obviously, with time, once we continue the expansion as it's taking course right now, certainly we'd love to be able to apply, offer this to more and more brands, because really, that's what we need to do. And and for what it's worth, I mean, we're not the only uh, business out there that that's providing an alternative material solution. There's a lot. There's a lot of options out there, um, but we're certainly the ones that we're proud to say we're producing the first um, fully traceable, 100% end of life wild caught fishing nets. That's amazing. And and also, I know historically you've also worked with Costa for sunglasses, Futures for 
um, surfboard fins, and I mean even Jenga uh, yeah. for the, you know their their game there. I, I'm was that was that all pre your partnership with Patagonia, or are those still ongoing partnerships? Um, no, it, they're all still ongoing. Absolutely, um, they're you know Costa is is going great. Um, Futures is just incorporating it, our material into more and more of their um, their their fin collections. Um, Jenga Ocean still still cruising, and we're looking at more ways we can develop other collections there. Um, Trek bikes, we're, we've done already started with a few accessories, and hoping to roll out more. Human scale office chairs, we've done the the smart ocean chair with them. Um, Waymo frisbees, we're we're doing a we've we've done various frisbees, and we can even do custom frisbees for for any brands interested out there. Um, yeah, gosh, I, I, now I'm kind of stuck listing them all off and I'm on the line if I've forgotten anyone. Carver, of course, Carver has been a great transition for us for covering skateboards. Um, so they're, they're now, um, working on more opportunities for other models that we could try to do, but we're still, you know, just exploring, but by far, um, while that was always going on, um, uh, by far the biggest one was, was with Patagonia and that's really kind of overtaken all of that while we still can certainly continue delivering on all those product applications. Um, the biggest opportunity to date is what we're working on now with Patagonia. That's really cool. And, and something that you've mentioned is the net plus kind of, I think, which is what, what, what you kind of call the pellets, right? That you're creating out of the fish nets. Exactly. You we're involved in something with, I think it was International Living Future Institute and the Living Product Challenge that uh, I think you participated in back in 2016. Is that an ongoing certification? And, and can you kind of share with us a little bit about what the Living Product Challenge is? Yeah, it's so this is really touching on my background personally. Um, I was specializing in the field of life cycle assessment. So what that is, is it's the science behind just as we can account in monetary terms, the 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 economic cost of, of a product. Um, this allows, this is the science behind accounting for things in the environmental cost. Um, so it, it, the most common form is a, a carbon footprint, but what it does is it studies the entire life cycle of a product or service or any defined system. Um, and it allows us to calculate um, the environmental cost it took to deliver that. So in, in terms of greenhouse gas emissions, water, uh, ecotoxicities. Um, typically, there's there's uh, eight to fourteen common environmental indicators that that get it gets measured against. But the most common is carbon emissions. Um, and so, what the Instant International Living Futures Institute and the Living Product Challenge does is it takes it a whole step further. Where typically an environmental eco label, a product, an environmentally preferable product label that you see on things usually reports a product that's done less bad to the environment. But the reality is it's still doing harm. Um, it's just reduced its harm, which is good. Um, but what they've tried to take it a step further with the, um, the Living Product Challenge is actually certified products that are only causing a net positive impact. So actually, when you add everything up, the fact that is it's doing good in the essence of the product itself is actually generating um, more good than harm, and it's actually a net positive impact on the environment. And so that's that's what really connected me with the certification. And when we started with our very first um, mechanical recycling process taking place in Chile, 
um, we got we partnered up with them and we we got our our skateboard deck and our material certified under it, um, being the Net Plus material. Um, and we are intending to revise it, but we have a new recycling process, a new supply chain, and all of that is going through the new life cycle assessment that we hope to be finalized in honestly the, the next couple months. Um, and then based on that information, we can get back into the certification and, and apply that information. But since that's all been updated and we've basically been going through a massive research and development phase over the last five years, we haven't re renewed it because there wouldn't be any point since we're still developing a new application. So all the material that's in the current product applications, the everything we just said, the, the Jengas, the Costas, all those, those were um, through that material process, but we're going to be switching that over, and then that'll require us to go through the certification again. So we do intend to do it. It's just going to take some more time. That's really cool. And there was something that I thought was really interesting when I was kind of reading through the the certification there was they mentioned they they had a, a score for the, the footprint and then a score for the handprint. Yes. And like the handprint being the positive. And that was just the first time I'd, I'd seen that. And I didn't know if that was kind of a new kind of language that's coming out. But I, th I thought that was really exciting. I, I connected it with the, the exact same way. I, I love that. That that was created by Greg Norris, um, who's been a bit of a mentor to me now from starting Boreo. And it's, it's a really brilliant concept where we always think of the ecological footprint, the carbon footprint, which is you stepping into something. But the handprint is actually you... Um, reaching out and benefiting something. And that's really the concept of that net positive impact. So um, I, I totally connect with that. And I think that needs to be the new standard. Absolutely. And I do hope that, that that does catch on more. I know he's got a lot more in the works to expand on it. And, and I'm excited just to be a part of it and, and see where it can go because we need to see more companies um, embracing not just neutrality, but net positive. And it's not easy. I'm not saying we're we're perfect either. It, it's a pro progress, but just to say we're less bad or neutral, I mean, it'd be nice to say we could actually regenerate environments and empower communities. That that's really, I think, should be the benchmark. That's so cool. Um, I'm I'm curious, how did you hear about B Corp certification, and how did that come into the mix of everything? Yeah, I mean, I, again, I think it, it definitely came with the territory of being an environmental consultant before I started. Um, so always was well aware of a B Corp. Um, and we did go through a, a pretty lengthy process of debating, should we be a nonprofit or should we be you know, a private entity when we started Boreo? And um, when we eventually got to the conclusion, we want to be a force for good and, and kind of use, um, you know, the the way the business is for for good that when we scale our positive impacts can scale and and when we when we saw the b corp movement already taking place it, it just perfectly spoke to what that vision was for us and now there's something that you don't have to have this long-winded explanation of what that is instead you have this beautiful seal and you're in this this network of like-minded companies that people recognize and respect and so I believe, I don't know if I'm, if it's fair for me to say this, it would be nice if I could get this verified, but I believe when we applied, we were the first startup ever to become a, um, I think they put us in like pending B Corp status because we we're still such an early stage startup, but we we're the first ever startup to be a B Corp certified that early in the stage of a company. That's so cool. That's <laughs> really cool. So I'll, I'll take it. I don't know. B Corp people 
feel free to correct me on that and uh, I will, I'll take it back, but I'm pretty sure we got that claim. That's so awesome. So, and so I'm curious with that now being part of the B Corp community from sounds like the very, very beginning, have you had partnerships that have come out of that or, or what benefit have you seen from being certified B Corp? Um, I think, uh, it, it's definitely added to our legitimacy, I think, is the biggest thing. Like I said, like just simply having that by your name and, and having that due diligence behind what we're saying. We're not just some, you know, greenwashing campaign here. It, it's it's audited every year and, and certified. Um, but yeah, and then, and then in addition to that, we certainly have made great connections in that space. Um, honestly, it hasn't really gone further than, um, connecting with like-minded companies, doing some cross promotional campaigns. Um, but yeah, I think with time, we'd like to see it go further. Um, and and then just really anything beyond that. I mean, um, (laughs) my wife was the language translator for B Corp Chile and, and, uh, we, we were very much in that space when we were based setting things up in Chile and. And we, we just love the community part of it. it is the biggest thing that we've get, gotten out of it more than anything else. That's cool. And, and I've heard that from a lot of folks too, like where it is, it's, it's such a great supportive uh, community for sure. Um, I'm curious, what have been some of your, you know, we've talked a little bit about some of the struggles of getting started and, and what that looks like. What have been some of your fondest memories and what have been some of the more rewarding moments of your journey so far? Yeah, um, I think definitely when the, the products are actually in your hands and you're experiencing them. That's pretty phenomenal. Um, I mean, and, and it just, it gets more and more crazy now that we're working with bigger and bigger brands are making more and more impressive stuff out of our material. That, that is really something. Um, the accomplishments of, of the scale we are getting to, I mean, we're shipping over a hundred tons every two months now of material and and just seeing it get out the door every time and the work that's put in to get that done is is really rewarding uh not a lot of times especially coming from an environmental consulting career like you get to actually really feel the results of what you're doing and and when you're down in the field and you see that impact it 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 feels great to like actually see the results come come to fruition um, and then on the ground, you know, the, the consciousness of the, the, the behavior change, like I talked about before, of, of um, what you're seeing in the communities. It's clear that it's caught on um, and people are really being aware of it. It's not only thanks to us. I mean, I think Chile as a country um, has really embraced uh, what needs to happen in terms of protecting their environment and and, and readjusting their industry so that it, it can be more aligned and and operate in a more sustainable way. And then just, yeah, but beyond that, and then just simply stuff like um, the personal notes we get from, especially from kids that are saying, my son, more than anything he wanted for his birthday this year was a Boreo skateboard because he said it was made from fishing nets that were protecting, you know, the ocean in so many words. (laughs) But I mean, that's really what it has to be about at the end of the day. If we want, we're not going to solve this. Like I said at the beginning, if three gringos down in South America, it's going to be a, a, a collective effort. And and I, I would love to feel that, you know, in some respect, we're setting the tone for the generation to come to really come in and, and have us as elders cheering them on and, and just passing the torch where they're going to fully get it. 
Uh, I, I personally feel like our generation was kind of figuring it out, but these guys from day one, I, I believe, like know these things are a problem and, and are very committed, uh, unlike any any other generation, uh, to to doing something about it. So I'm very much proud to feel like we're we're sparking some of that as well and, and seeing them carry that on after we we fight the good fight. What's next for 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 Burio? To date you've you know partnered with some really great brands as we mentioned um, Costa, Patagonia, the list goes on. I'm curious what can fans look forward to seeing from you all in the future? I mean unfortunately all I can say for now is stay tuned. Um, there's a lot in the works um, but not much to be said right now other than um, there's going to be many other ways we're looking forward to offer you our solution in, in various product applications. And, um, and for now, I mean, there's some pretty rad stuff out there. The, the, the hat launch we did now, every Patagonia brim is made with our plastic um, has been a really great accomplishment. Um, and really the next is, is going to be another big step for us that we're just can't wait to get, get to happen. And, but until then, I, I can't really say much other than we're, we're, we're on our way. Cool. I, I'm curious too, with, with Patagonia, how did you and Patagonia connect? Like how was, how did that bond form? Good question. Yeah, we get that a lot too. Um, so it was surprisingly organic. I mean, I guess naturally with Patagonia, but, um, we, we had various encounters early on, um, we actually, you know, when we started, we set them again with the B Corp movement and everything. We, we really looked at, again, as a, a great example was Patagonia as a, as a business that was for profit, but really making um, driving change and positive solutions with, with the way their for profit business worked. And so all along, we had them in mind. And we actually, when we applied for the, the grant from the Chilean government, we even reached out to their their director of their operation in Chile to see if they'd write a letter of support. He did. That kind of kept us in, in the loop with him. So that was great. And then we actually got a story on um, the CBS Evening News on our, our Kickstarter campaign and the launch of our skateboard. And that's where their new investment director um, saw it. And although we were by far the smallest uh, company to be considered for their investment portfolio, um, they gave us a meeting. And I think our transparency and our passion and, and our, you know, our experience as well came through. And, and even though at the time we were just this teeny little plastic cruiser skateboard company, um, they, they took us on and, and that seed fund really allowed us to keep going and, and, and get to where we are today. Yeah. Well, here's, here's another, actually a question from, um, from a listener, if you will. So the question is how do they balance removing waste and selling a product that might go back into the waste cycle? So all the products, um, we've, we've brought to the market to date are all able to be recycled again. And we've already, and, and like on the skateboard packaging, on the sunglass packaging, it's all, we have a contact us and we can, um, take it back and, and recycle it again. So that's the benefit of injection molded parts. It's, it's something you can easily recycle again. So really we do already have, in fact, in, in the plants. So it's not to be discarded. But the bigger thing, honestly, more than that is because it, it is one thing to say it can be recycled. It's another thing to have someone go through the effort of, of you know, sending it all the way back and, and making going to the post office and everything. 
what is more important to us is that we're making really quality products that have a long life. Um, and so we really focused in on that. We're not doing anything remotely close to a single use product. It's all stuff that um, will, will last a lifetime, we believe. And, and really the cases that we run into, and we do get it from time to time is, is the, you know, the skateboard gets run over by a truck and it, it broke. Like, can I send it back? Yeah, of course. Stuff like that is really the only thing we've run into to date. Um, but definitely always have had in mind what we want to achieve is a circular economy. It's a work in progress. We're not saying it's buttoned up, but that's ultimately what we have to get to as a society um, in order to solve the plastic pollution crisis so that when something becomes a waste, it actually becomes a resource for another supply chain. That makes sense. I, I'm, I'm curious kind of in terms of going deeper on the actual process. I mean, I imagine there has to be some, some, some kind of negative effects in terms of actually processing the plastic or, or maybe there isn't. I'm, I'm curious, how, how do you navigate that process? Yeah, exactly. So that kind of goes back to the life life cycle assessment study that we do. So that tracks the entire process. So nets are collected from the fishermen. They're transported through, obviously, a, a diesel truck. So there's an impact there to get to our warehouse where they are then pre-processed. That does involve some industrial equipment that consumes electricity. That's typically from a, a mix of coal-fired power and, and chili and, and hydropower. Um, so there's some, some impact there. Then it has to get shipped to a recycler. The recycler uses industrial equipment, which requires more electricity. And so every step, there's unavoidable impact. So what we do is through the life cycle assessment, like we did in the initial one, we understand where the impacts are. First, what we can do to reduce them. For example, um, when you're recycling, when you're transporting, we made a policy that we need to keep the trucks to a certain capacity and the recycling runs to a certain minimum capacity to ensure that it can be run as efficiently as possible. If you're saying a massive truck to only get 500 kilos and the truck can hold 20, that's a real waste of energy and, and is not, a, not an efficient way to operate. Same idea with, with recycling runs. The, the recycling equipment has to heat up. It has to prep. That's at least an hour of the machine running before you can actually use it. So in, in order to do that, we should be doing recycling runs that's at least, you know, five, 10 tons. So we're not doing it for a couple hundred kilos and, and wasting all this energy that wasn't consumed to set everything up. So those were the first steps. But the deeper thing we're trying to do here, and this is something that's still um, very much a work in progress with the new LCA being completed. But what we achieved early on with the Living Product Challenge, and that's how we got certified, is we actually... So when you're an artisanal fisherman, when, you, when you're a, a fisherman, subsistence living fisherman, we happily pay you per kilo for your net because it takes time, it takes energy, it takes, it takes an effort, and, and you, need the, you can always use an extra buck to get by. So we want to pay you directly per kilo. They, they could really use it. In terms of commercial fisheries, these are huge fleets. One fishing net can be 30,000 kilos, 60,000 pounds of fishing net. And they have big warehouses, they have infrastructure, and, and they're actually running more into like the cost of a waste management service having to take, pay an expensive fee to take this material for, um, away for them. They have to pay to take it away. And so in that case, what we developed was national agreements in both Chile, Argentina, and Peru with the fishing 
commercial fishing industry associations, where we now have the largest commercial fisheries in each country, instead of selling us the nets, committing to donate the nets to us, where we in return commit to the budget we already had to buy the nets to instead go to local NGOs that are then going to use that money to implement environmental projects in those surrounding artisanal fishing communities where those commercial fisheries operate. And what those projects are doing is not only going to be there to, to find the needs of the community and implement empowering work, but also it's tying in how do we offset these unavoidable impacts we have in our supply chain. So the, the non-renewable energy we're consuming, the water consumption and so forth are things that we can actually offset by the work we're doing with those community projects. That's how we ch achieved the Living Product Challenge certification early on. And that's what we're looking to scale as we're consuming more and more materials donated by commercial fisheries in more and more countries. How do you select those different community projects? Like, is there, do community projects, like, do they pitch to you all or do you go out and find them or, or, or how do those relationships get built? We typically focus on waste management, environmental education and renewable energies. But we definitely don't try to come in with any more of an agenda other than that to invite the local NGO to be the ones to engage with the community leaders and see what their needs are first and foremost, and then decide on the project based on that. That's so cool. And is, are, are there like a small handful of NGOs that you're working with or do you yes. kind of have relationships that you just kind of go back to? Yeah, we have in Argentina, it's the Whale Conservation Institute, which we just started working with about a year, just over a year ago. Um, that's using the funds to first and foremost, they identified, you know what, fishermen don't even know much about this problem. So the first thing they're doing is actually educating. And the great breakthrough they got is they actually, there's a standard curriculum that every fisherman operating on a vessel has to take by, by the country's requirements. And they're getting into the curriculum a portion that's going to educate all these fishermen getting trained on, you know, how to operate safely on a boat to now know about the consequences of discarding trash and, and, and fishing nets overseas and, and the solutions that are available and what they can do instead of discarding it into the marine environment. Um, that's a project we have going there. In Chile, we have a range of NGOs that we work with locally. Um, the biggest is um, with a local NGO in the, in the, the most the hot, most prevalent fishing area of the country in, in the BOBO region is Fundacional Arbol. And they've done a whole variety of projects for the last six years with us from community composting centers to environmental education programs to primary schools to um, overhauls of waste management infrastructure. We did a program to phase out um, uh, the single-use plastics in all the local restaurants of a fishing village. Um, and now we're actually doing a, a, a solar PV project uh, with, a, with a local uh, homeless shelter. And so it's, it's pretty, pretty dynamic what we end up doing. And then in, in um, Peru, uh, we're working mainly with World Wildlife Fund Peru, which was our partner from the start that, that got us, helped us get set up in Peru in the first place. And the work really there so far has really been about um, just workshopping and finding the needs of the community and getting the net collection set up first and foremost. But from there is where we look to do more of these renewable energy project, waste management infrastructure improvements, and environmental education. That's great. I'm, I'm curious, is there anything that 
um, you know, know, knowing that you uh, kind of get to get to share the word about this um, with some frequency. Is there ever anything that you really are just like, oh, my gosh, I just want the world to know about this thing, but it never really comes up in interviews like this or like a question you've always wanted to be asked, but that just never seems to come to surface? I mean, there's there's so many different things, but I mean, I think I think um, one big thing we, we talk a lot about is the fact that a lot of people and, and it's even within the industry don't realize how different different types of not all recycling is created equal. We actually did a big post on this at, when COVID hit. Um, and the fact that um, there's a big difference between post-industrial and post-consumer recycling that needs to be better educated because it's really difficult for us to compete in that space and it's affecting our work. So post-consumer is what we're doing. It's when you have the end-of-use material that has been used by consumers, in this case fishermen, and is no longer usable and it takes a lot more effort and it's a lot more vulnerable to to become a pollution. Whereas post-industrial never leaves the factory. It's from the shop room floor that, yes, it's reclaimed and recycled because it's scrapped from a production process. But that stuff typically can get branded the same as our material. And that can cause a lot of difficulties for us in the industry to justify our price point because those guys can just scoop it up and put it back into a recycling machine and now say that's 100% recycled, where we have to ethically pay all the workers in the communities, incentivize the fishermen, invest in the infrastructure needed, um, all the operations throughout every country we operate in to make this great length of an effort to go to these vast assortment of communities. I mean, we've sourced nets from over 50 sources across um, three countries now, well, four counting California that we're already working in. And that is not, it's it's not apples to apples. And, and so there's a lot of different things that are subtle to the recycling movement um, that can make it really challenging for, for people that are really being authentic. So what I would recommend in our space is focus on transparency and traceability. Another one is like people like to blend in a, a portion of recycled plastic into a product, but then really hone in on that story, even though it could be as little as 10%. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. It's definitely a step in the right direction. It's a heck of a lot better than 0%, but it just changes the game for people that are really trying to do the wholehearted effort. And so um, it's great to see there is actually, in fact, a movement happening. But I think um, it's something you do struggle with when you're trying to be differentiating yourself and making it clear like this extra effort we going we're going through is actually worth it because if we're not treated that way in in the market we can't actually sustain our business and so that that's a big important point for us um and then like what i always said from the start of uh when i started vareo is is the novel idea I always had peace with was that like what if someone steals our idea and and the answer was always for me was well, if someone was already had a solution to go out to fishing communities and create this positive solution, like we're already one. So it is kind of cool to see that, but you just want to make sure that everyone goes to that standard. So it's a bit of wild of the wild, wild west right now when, when there's all these loose turns of ocean plastic and, and recycled and from this source and that source. 
Um, and so I just, I do think there is a need to kind of tighten that up a bit. Um, the other thing that I would definitely recommend checking out anyone that's interested in getting involved in any solutions when it comes to, um, lost discarded fishing gear, which is commonly coined the phrase ghost gear. Um, I'm also an active member of a umbrella organization called the global ghost gear initiative that's run through the ocean conservancy. And this is really a platform for policy, um, if you have a business working in this space, they have a best practice framework to incorporate. Um, and if you are in a community where you want to take action, we have a solutions group that is driven for people that want to take action and don't know how. We're here to, to have you come to our platform and, and learn how. And there's even we can even help align you with funding available to, to create that solution. So that's probably a worthwhile note to leave people on is, is that there are solutions available for that. And there's a whole lot of other networks available, Plastic Pollution Co Coalition, Five Gyres, um, all these other great groups, Surf Rider Foundation, um, that if you want to do something locally, there are people. You'd be surprised. Even inland, you don't have to be in a coastal environment of people actively working on this cause right now. And you'd be surprised how many people that you feel like you're alone with your thoughts are actually thinking the same thing and, and want to fight right alongside you. So if you're interested, I would highly recommend getting involved and checking those groups out. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. And I'll make sure all those groups I, I link to in the show notes. I want to back up though, because I want to make sure I'm understanding and that listeners are understanding too, kind of the difference between the different types of recycling. So, and tell me if this is right. So what I'm picturing in my mind when you say industrial recycling is, so like, let's say somebody's making a t-shirt and it's just a, like a square piece of fabric and they cut the shape of the t-shirt out, the stuff that, you know, that you'd pull away and kind of push onto the floor, they're scooping up and creating maybe a patch with or another shirt with, and they're calling that recycling. Correct. That's, that's post-industrial recycled material. So to me, it sounds like that's not really not really recycling. That's more just using all of the entirety of a product, right? That's what okay. I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's my point. So those guys can suddenly fall in because people only just hear the word recycled, 100% recycled, let alone recyclable. Recyclable is an even worse term. That just means that this product, although it's made from virgin material, it can have the opportunity to be recycled in the future. And people are overselling that claim too. Most people don't even know the difference between, let alone post-consumer and post-industrial, the difference between recyclable and recycled. Recyclable is completely virgin material. It's just able to be recycled at its end of life, which honestly, everything should be. It's like saying, hey, we don't have you know child labor and we don't have slaves making this. This is slave-free chocolate, guys. You know, it's it's like, yeah, that should be inherent, you know, with with what we're making here. So is, is there an, is there an effort around that recycle language? Like, I, I mean, you know, <clears throat> most of us are familiar with greenwashing and kind of, you know, are pretty keen to reading between the lines. But I mean, I, I guess like for myself, like thinking I hear something's recycled and I take it at face value. I'm like, Oh sweet. This was something else before, but it sounds like in the case of industrial recycling, that's not necessarily true. It's just that they're actually using all of the material. Yeah. I mean, look, we're still trying to get people not to, you know, use a, a w plastic water bottle for 30 seconds and then throw it away on the ground. Like, we're, we, why I'm bringing this up now is because it's usually the things that we don't talk about because there's so many more urgent matters to discuss. And, and really, anything is, is better than nothing. 
is usually the attitude. But if you really want to dig in, yeah, these are the things that in the inner sanctum of, of the recycling movement are, are challenges, let alone the, but this is the kind of stuff that is why recycling businesses don't make it. And, and, and material is, is hard to, um, to sustain and, and justify. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much, Ben. This is, this has been great. This is so good. Um, is there any, My pleasure. anything else there that you want to add or throw in there that you make sure folks hear or know about? Uh, I mean, stay tuned with us on, um, we, you know, we'll make all of our announcements. You can check us out at Boreo.co and at Boreo through Instagram. Uh, whenever we make launches and everything, it, it, it goes through those channels. So feel free to follow us there on all the exciting happenings that we have coming in the near future. And, um, and yeah, and, and, if you're looking to do something now more than ever, there's so much support out there. Um, if you're looking to take action, um, just jump on the internet. Um, you guys will provide the links here, some great outlets to, to read into and, and get involved with. You can, you can take action right now and we need it. Thank you so much for joining us today. To find links to learn more about Boreo, stop by the show notes at responsiblydifferent.com. You may have noticed in this interview, I had some questions from listeners. Drop us a note at responsiblydifferent.com. Let us know what you like about the show, what you want more or less of, and I'll reach out to you when I'm interviewing someone that I think you'd enjoy so you can submit some of your very own questions. Our listener question this week is from Tess Haquez in Portland, Maine. Thanks, Tess, for your question. And, of course, for tuning into Responsibly Different. Now, for a quick update on our own B Corp certification, we're super close. We're working with the students of the UNHB Impact Clinic, and it's been tremendously helpful as they help us navigate the best way to go about approaching these questions. Currently, we're at 80.5 points, and those of you that have been following along, we started this journey at a mere 30, so that's really exciting for us. And those of you familiar with the B-Impact Assessment, or BIA for short, know that technically, 80 points is enough to certify. In an abundance of caution, our goal is to have over 95 points when we hit that beautiful submit button on our assessment to actually start the certification process. Something we've been looking into are different ways that we can reduce our carbon footprint and really dig in on that environmental piece. And this is a tip that I wanted to share with all of you because while it's something that we're looking into, it might be something that you could for your business as well. I know a lot of times when we think about solar, it feels like there's so many barriers to that, right? Like having to put solar panels on the building and and finding space. And for us, we don't own our building, we lease. You know, so there's a lot of complications there. Well, we got this really cool flyer from a community solar project where there's a community solar farm that you can essentially choose as a utility. So rather than buying your electricity from XYZ company, you can instead buy it from the your community solar farm company. So that's something that we're looking into. I'm going to make sure that I include that in the show notes, the links to the that particular one. So if you are in the greater Portland area, that might be a great option for you. Um, It's something that we're only ankle deep into exploring. Well, I want to thank you again for tuning in today. If you're enjoying this content, subscribe and leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. We're all in this together. Till next time, be responsibly different.
This is a production of Deergo Collective. Music composed by our own Kevin Oates. You can follow us on social media at Deergo Collective or visit our corner of the internet at deergocollective.com.